This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 31st, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Republican U.S. Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky doesn't think much about NSA spying on Americans, the challenges faced by D.C. residents to secure their own protection, and federal regulation of hemp. He visited the Cato Institute this week to discuss these issues and more. I spoke with Representative Steve Cohen a while back, and uh, he was calling for what Rand Paul is essentially calling for now, which is for the federal government to truly respect states uh, once and for all that have legalized marijuana for medical and other uh, purposes. You've been very vocal in pushing from the hemp side yeah. for, for the federal government to respect states. Is there a legislative nexus here uh, with respect to federalism and getting the feds out of, of regulating cannabis at the state level? Well, I try and get get the two separated hemp from cannabis because they are, uh, even though they're cousins and they're virtually the same plant, one's used for one thing, one's used for another, and um, you can't get high off of hemp. But I'd like to talk about both of those issues. Um, hemp is widely supported in Kentucky because our Republican Commissioner of Agriculture ran on the hemp uh, platform. It was a part of his uh, platform and was elected in a year that was otherwise bad for Republicans. Um, it's an alternative crop for farmers in Kentucky. It used to be grown in the United States. Um, it's really separate from the drug issue. And uh, I had an amendment on the farm bill that passed with Jared Polis and Earl Blumenauer, two Democrats, passed by a wide margin and then made it through the conference bill, and it's now law. So there's hemp being grown in Kentucky for the first time in like 50 years, well, legally for the first time, um, although it does grow wild anyways. But back to the uh, cannabis issue or uh, marijuana issue, I've polled this in my district because I think it's important not just to represent your own thoughts on things, but the people who elected you to Congress. And here's what I found out in my district. Um, most of the people in my district, whether they're uh, Republican or Democrat, do not support legalization of marijuana. But I asked two other questions. I asked a question about medical marijuana when prescribed by a doctor. And two-thirds of the Republicans in my district support medical marijuana if it's pre prescribed by a doctor. And it's higher than that for Democrats. Then I asked another question, which is relevant um, to your point, which is regardless of how you feel about the legalization of marijuana, do you think that it should be prohibited by the federal government or left up to the states? And 75% of my constituents, whether they were Republican or Democrat, believe that it should be left up to the states. So that's, that makes it easy for me. My, my constituents and I are aligned, and I do believe it's a state issue, not a federal issue. Do you think there's going to be a broad push in that direction in the near term? I know Rand Paul has effectively sponsored legislation to that effect. Well, there's definitely movement in the House. I don't think the, the majority of the House um, can get there yet, but we had a very telling vote at one of these amendments that happens on an appropriations bill. Dana Rohrabacher was the sponsor, and it basically said that none of the funds used in this appropriations bill will be used to enforce um, or to crack down on people who are prescribing medical marijuana. So we have had a vote on medical marijuana in the House, and it did pass. So a majority of the members of the House of Representatives support the state's rights uh, or, or the rights of the people in the states 
and the state legislature's authority to um, to pa- to make their own laws on a state by state basis. Uh, on the matter of D.C. Uh, yeah. with respect to guns, of course, whether you like it or not, and you like it, I suppose that Congress rules D.C. as a constitutional matter. Uh, over the weekend, we had a case involving Cato senior fellow Tom Palmer, who's out in California right now. The case is Palmer v. D.C. A federal judge ruled. Uh, an absolute ban, which D.C. effectively had on the carrying of a firearm by a D.C. resident outdoors, outside their home, uh, is effectively unconstitutional. That's the bare arms uh, part. You want to take that, I think, a step further and assert Congress's prerogative to regulate D.C. Uh, So what what do you want to do? To deregulate to D.C., to restore the rights of the people in D.C. So... uh, let me back up from the ruling we just had this weekend, go back to July 16th. I introduced one of those interesting uh, amendments to an appropriations bill because it's an open rule on the floor of the House. Anybody can introduce an amendment. And my amendment basically said that none of these funds, and this was the appropriations bill for D.C. for funding the District of Columbia, none of the funds shall be used by any agent of the government of D.C. to enforce any of these laws. And I listed four of the D.C. laws that were written in the wake of the Heller decision in 2008. You see in 2008, the decades-old gun ban in D.C. was was overturned by the Supreme Court. Well, the uh, D.C. local government has crept back up to that line, and I would say they've crossed it, and they're doing unconstitutional things. So I offered my amendment on July 16th. It passed 241 to 181, it basically defunded all the D.C. gun laws. And uh, some cry home rule. Some say that you're, you're betraying your pen- principles of local uh, authority. But I remind them that uh, Madison and, and Federalist 43 said that we had to have a federal city. It couldn't be part of a state. Otherwise, that single state would exert undue influence over the federal government. And so Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution does give Congress the authority to legislate in all matters for the District of Columbia. But the judge's ruling this weekend pointed out something else that I've always said. And this is what the McDonald versus Chicago Supreme Court case said, which is it doesn't matter whether you have statehood. It doesn't matter what your city council wants to do. A, a, a locality or a state, regardless of whether it's the District of Columbia or a, a state, cannot um, deprive somebody of their basic right to self-defense, which is enshrined in the Second Amendment. And so the the Palmer decision, we'll name it the Palmer decision, I guess now, even though it's a lower court ruling and not a Supreme Court ruling, but it's it's significant in that it takes Heller and uh, McDonald and puts them together and says, uh, D.C. can't keep people from carrying a handgun outside of their home and uh, doesn't really have anything to do with statehood or local rule. I know you're technically in the majority. That is, uh, you're (laughs) part of a Republican majority. Do you really feel like you're part of the majority in in the House? And I mean, I'm talking about, you know, are there areas where you essentially stridently disagree with most of your House Republican colleagues? Well, you know, um, U.S. uh, politics is shoehorned into the two two-party system. And overseas, they've got sort of a coalition government in, in a lot of countries. 
Now, I'm, I'm not uh, saying ours is, is, isn't better than theirs, but really within ours, you have to recognize you have coalitions. You have coalitions within the Republican Party, and then you have actually some natural coalitions that form between Republicans and Democrats. And I've formed several of those depending on what the issue is. Now, in the House of Representatives, I go back and I tell my constituents, Republicans are in the majority, but fiscal conservatives are not. And until you come to grips with that, it's hard to understand why there's a $17 trillion deficit and it just keeps going up, even though the House of Representatives holds the purse strings. So um, that's, that's a, something that's important to point out. Fiscal conservatives are not in the majority, even though Republicans are. There are, there are lots of times that I can form coalitions across the aisle on, on various issues. For instance, uh, mandatory minimums. I'm on a bill with Bobby Scott that mirrors a bill that Senator Paul has. Uh, I'm not sure who he teamed up with in Patrick the Senate. Leahy. Patrick Leahy, that's right. I've, I've got the mirror of that bill with Bobby Scott in the House, who's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, with Zoe Lofgren from Silicon Valley. She's from the techie area, and I went to a techie school. Uh, we understand and care about issues of privacy, um, issues for cell phone unlocking, for instance. And then you've got Jared Polis and Earl Blumenauer, who I can team up with on the hemp issue, for instance. So um, you can get things done in the House by reaching across the aisle. Uh, related to that, this issue of uh, majorities and minorities, um, with respect to what is happening now uh, on the border, our southern border in the United States, do you, is it appropriate to view that as a humanitarian problem with these unaccompanied children crossing the border? Well, you know, the, let me back up a little bit and start at the high level. Um, the, some say that the libertarian viewpoint should be open borders, and that's completely, and that may be the right approach or not for, for some people, but it's completely incompatible with a welfare state. And if you've got incentives, if you're giving away free things and you've got an incentive for people to come across the border, that's, you're going to have that. And I'm afraid that's what the president has set up. Um, I believe that we need strong borders. Um, do we have a humanitarian crisis there? Yes. I, I, I don't mean to be really partisan here, but I really do think the president has caused this problem. I don't think he has a genuine interest in doing what he can to fix it. Um, and, you know, my son two years ago went to Honduras on a mission to help kids down there um, with the church. And uh, it wasn't a war zone or he's, he, you know, he was 14 at the time. I wouldn't send him to a war zone. There are a lot of things that we could do to help folks without opening our borders and telling them to come here and, and uh, exhaust our, our social nets here. So what do you see as the path forward specific with respect to the, the children uh, that are crossing the border here? I, I, in some sense, I think the president has just uh, called checkmate. I think he's got incredible leverage with this issue. He says that uh, Congress must act. And I'm, I'm worried um, that if the House acts and, the, and Harry Reid refuses to do anything in the Senate, then the president can say, well, they have confirmed that they must act because they tried to act, yet they were incapable of doing anything. And he'll paint Harry Reid with that broad brush, but Harry Reid won't care. He won't be damaged by it. 
you'll say Congress has failed to act, and now I have uh, essentially more authority to act. And I, I'm afraid that's what will happen. I think there is very little besides uh, the optics of the situation that we can influence in the House of Representatives before our recess um, in August and our recess in October. So the question is, unfortunately, and I hate this part about Congress, the question is, what are the optics of the situation and what could you pass to, to uh, affect the optics? Representative Robert Pittenger of North Carolina recently uh, took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal uh, and he referred to the amendment that you sponsored with uh, Congresswoman Lofgren to rein in NSA surveillance as uh, making the mistake of going much too far in protecting privacy. You obviously disagree. So what, do, what does uh, your amendment do? Well, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the metadata, how everybody's uh, phone records are being collected and archived. There's another program that's been referred to as the PRISM program where the government actually collects your content of your emails, your photographs, records your phone calls, your chat sessions. We're talking about content here. That's only if there's a reasonable expectation that somebody on the other end is overseas. It, but in the process of that's a, a fairly big filter and a lot of stuff gets through, a lot of genuine uh, U.S. persons' conversations are being harvested, which is okay. We understand that's going to happen. But uh, when they query that big database or the haystack, as they call it, they should be going in there and looking uh, for terrorist-type information uh, because this is under FISA. This is not under the Patriot Act. This is under foreign intelligence um, regime. But here's the problem. That program has evolved, and they're going in there querying that database with your name, my name, some identifier that's uniquely uh, to, unique to a U.S. person. And it's, it's basically a phishing expedition without a search warrant, without probable cause. So all our amendment does that uh, Zoe Lofgren and I offered is it says you have to have probable cause and a search warrant if you're going to dive into that database and go looking for U.S. person's stuff in there. Now, there's a second part to our amendment. We, by the way, that's called backdoor searches. You know, in the media, that's sort of the name that's evolved. There's another backdoor that's being exploited by the U.S. government that, as the second half of our amendment, um, seeks to address. Our federal government right now can use its money and its influence to coerce companies to put uh, secret encryption keys or defects into their software that will allow the U.S. government to, to basically uh, turn on, uh, give them backdoor keys, if you will, into U.S. products. The problem with that, just the pragmatic problem, is it's killing our sales of hardware and software overseas in Europe. Now, if you're in Europe, it's, it's a windfall if you're a manufacturer in Europe. You can say, look, we don't, you can be sure if you're buying a German product, we're not putting American uh, backdoor keys in, in the products. And so it's hurting our competitiveness overseas. So those are the two things that our amendment does. It passed 293 to 123. That's, uh, it's an amendment, but I think it's important to point out that's a veto-proof majority if it were a standalone bill. Uh, Mr. Pittenger also yeah. writes in this same op-ed, U.S. intelligence agencies are already under strict oversight by Congress, the president, and the judicial system and are prohibited from targeting the communications of American citizens without first obtaining a court order on a case-by-case -case basis. 
Is that true? No. If they were under strict surveillance or, or strict uh, oversight of Congress, we wouldn't be having this discussion. We're having this discussion because the, the government's been out of control. And the oversight is not uh, 435 members of Congress. It's a tightly controlled intelligence committee, select intelligence committee. And there really aren't any civil liberties advocates on that committee. Now, in the Senate, the, uh, Senator Wyden is on that committee, and he's uh, advocating for civil liberties. But apart from that, I really there's, there are none in the House. Um, so, you know, some people say that I'm threatening by requiring probable cause in a search warrant to search these databases of content for U.S. persons identifiers that I'm compromising the safety of the United States or the 293 of the 435 congressmen that voted for it are compromising our safety, which is absolutely false. You can have security and you can have civil liberties at the same time. And, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment and our founders, they set this up that way. There's just some basic, you know, important uh, checks that you have to have on that system. And right now, all of those, all those fuses are blown and our government is doing uh, things that are not constitutional. How should we reform our criminal justice system? I know you've worked on issues with, with respect to mandatory minimums, as has your uh, colleague in the Senate, Rand Paul, and have found, I think, some enormous traction because I, think, I just think a lot of Republicans until very recently haven't been willing to take this issue up. Right. How, you know, how, how much traction is that really going to have over, over the long term? I think it's getting traction. And as Senator Paul takes it to a wider audience um, in, in the process of possibly running for president, I think it's going to get more traction as well. There's support on the left side and the right side of the aisle. Now, some will tell you that you have to be tough on crime to be conservative. And I believe you, sh you, know, you should be tough on, on violent crime. But there are crimes where really there are no victims um, other than possibly the perpetrator, in which case that's personal responsibility. But um, here's, here's the problem with being tough on these victimless crimes. It's not conservative to lock a huge percent of your population up. I was in county government. I had to write the checks for the county jail. And I would go over to the jail, and we had some people locked up, and you'd just scratch your head and say, how is this solving the problem to lock this person up, for instance, for a year it's, uh, for child support? They're, they're not going to be able to pay this child support bill, and then after they get out, they're not going to be employable. So anyways, it's just not conservative uh, to spend so much money on jails. You're exhausting the funds at the state level, the county level, the federal level by keeping all of these people locked up. And it also, as, as Senator Paul points out, disproportionately affects minorities. You can just look at the statistics. You're a loud and uh, opponent of internet sales taxes, and we're now sort of seeing a situation where it seems more possible than ever that uh, something like that could be uh, sort of uh, a stowaway on yeah. another piece of legislation. Right. How, how do you handicap that right now? Well, I'll tell you what. When I got here to Congress, I thought, well, there's no way in the world any Republican would ever vote for a tax increase that's that broad. Well, there are a lot of Republicans that say this isn't a new tax. We're just helping states collect the tax that they've already, they're already owed. 
And I would say it's definitely a new tax. Um, and when I got here and I just started querying the members and saying, what about that internet sales tax? Isn't that the craziest thing you ever saw? Someone saying, oh, wait, right, right there. Um, no, we need this back in my state. And the governor supports it. And I support my governor. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there's more support for this than I realized among my own conference. And I told our leadership, I said, look, this is the wood chipper. And you've got members with their hands ready to stick into the wood chipper. Um, and to go for this internet sales tax. Here's, here's the most disturbing thing to me. It, it's not just the additional revenue that's going to come out of people's pockets. Um, I, I say it is a new tax because at the end of the day, there's going to be more people, more money come from the people and go to the government. Um, here's the more disturbing thing. It, it violates a principle um, that, or a nexus that the Supreme Court established several years ago which is you have to have a physical presence in a state or a jurisdiction in order to be liable to the laws of that state or jurisdiction. Um, well, this blows that away. The, the internet sales tax, as proposed by the Senate, and it passed on like one of those test votes in the Senate with 75 votes, a lot of Republicans voted for it. This makes it our United States, um, I call it the virtual United States of America, instead of the United States of America, because if you're a retailer, an internet retailer in Kentucky, you're now going to be liable for sales tax audits in um, the, I think there are about 45 other states that charge a, a sales tax. That And, you know, maybe your chances are only one in 20 of, of pulling an audit in any one year. But now if, you've, if you're in a pool and you're drawing your name out of the hat 45 times a year, you're going to have two or three sales tax audits a year. And what if... Um, you have a disagreement with that jurisdiction. Their laws now apply to you, even though you may have never set foot in that jurisdiction. You don't have any trucks there. You don't have any buildings there. So uh, that's the most disturbing thing about me and I th about that tax to me. And I think it would uh, have a chilling effect on internet commerce. And it's, it's really going to uh, open the door for other things. There has been some discussion in uh, both chambers, and this is what scares me, um, of tying the internet sales tax to the extension of the internet service provider tax moratorium. You see, right, it, Congress decided, and some of it was pretty visionary when the, the internet was just getting started, that this was important enough that we needed to keep local jurisdictions from taxing your internet service because it could be, you know, just uh, too tempting for a lot of local jurisdictions and states to start taxing internet service. So there's a moratorium on any state or local jurisdiction taxing your internet service right now. Well, that expires this fall uh, right before the election. And um, there has been some discussion, hopefully it's died, about tying the internet tax to this, uh, uh, the internet sales tax to the moratorium on internet sales or internet service providers. It seems like the impact here uh, would be a fairly disparate one on small retailers who happen to engage in a lot of online sales. Yeah, this is what people need to understand. And I understand this acutely uh, because of the lobbyists that pound on me when I come, go to the floor of the house and speak against the internet sales tax. Um, this is not led by small mom-and-pop uh, brick retailers 
the uh, the the push for the internet sales tax. They're not up here in Congress asking for an internet sales tax. It's it's your big retailers, um, your big box stores. They feel threatened by the internet. They feel threatened by the sort of commerce that eBay enables, and uh, they seek for Congress to level the playing field for them. So uh, if you go back to my state, retailers, the small retailers don't fit uh, this one-size-fits-all uh, description. They're not like bricks and mortar. We call them brick and click. Most of the small retailers in my uh, area are selling stuff on the internet and to their neighbors locally, and <clears throat> they don't want an internet sales tax. It's going to take more money out of people's pockets. There'll be less commerce, be more headaches for them. They'll have to they'll have to pull back in and just sell things in their own state instead of dealing with you know nine thousand taxing jurisdictions. So it's really being pushed by the big box stores and the and the big retailers. It's not being pushed by the small shops on Main Street. Thomas Massey is a Republican U.S. representative from Kentucky. You can watch a video version of this and other interviews and see highlights from various events at our YouTube page and at our website cato.org.